Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in our review of Stanley's War. It's August of 1945. Our hero, the Silver King, is still waiting word on exactly when and how he will get home. Stanley hasn't written to his family since July 10th, but much has happened in the ensuing weeks. As Stanley awaits word on how he will travel home from Europe, it's been three months since the war ended in the European theater of operations. And the war in the Pacific theater continued to grind on. After Okinawa fell to American forces on June 22nd of 1945, an invasion of the Japanese home islands was about to begin. But before the invasion was to take place, the most destructive war in history came to a shattering and rapid conclusion. The United States Army Air Corps, flying two B-29 Super Fortress Boeing bombers that were built by Martin Manufacturing at the government's Omaha, Nebraska plant, delivered devastating weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. The Enola Gay B-29 dropped Little Boy, a uranium-235 nuclear fission bomb on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. The boxcar B-29 detonated Fat Man, an implosion nuclear bomb filled with plutonium over Nagasaki three days later. Little Boy, the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, killed as many as 140,000 people. And two days after that, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan. Then, Fat Man was dropped over Nagasaki, killing approximately 70,000 people. And finally, recognizing that victory was impossible, the Japanese government accepted the Allies' surrender terms without qualifications on August 14, 1945. And that same day, President Harry S. Truman announced from the White House that the Japanese acceptance met the terms laid down at the Potsdam Conference for unconditional surrender. As soon as the news of Japan's surrender was announced on August 14th, celebrations erupted across the United States. The United Kingdom announced that its official VJ Day would be the next day on August 15th, and Americans exuberantly joined in that day's merriment as well. In New York City's Times Square, sailors climbed lampposts to unfurl American flags as ticker tape rained down upon the throngs gathered to celebrate the war's end. In thousands of small towns across America, Scenes played out that included fireworks, confetti, and impromptu Main Street parades. 
in San Francisco, parades celebrated that troops would soon return home through that city. And in Honolulu, marching bands, parades, and ticker tape filled the streets. In backyard celebrations, veterans drank toasts in the warm sunlight. People drove throughout the city, flying flags and relishing the moment that Americans were waiting for since the attack on Pearl Harbor. The Victory Over Japan Day would officially be celebrated in the United States on the day of the formal surrender and the documents that were signed aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, 1945. And on the day, August 6th, that the Air Corps dropped Little Boy on Hiroshima, the Silver King wrote a three-page letter from Paris, the first letter that he had written since July 10th a period of 27 days. Stanley's August 6th letter from Paris didn't really express any of his usual joie de vivre regarding the City of Light. He was describing instead the waiting and boredom and wondering about when they were getting home. At a a depot, in Le Bourg, where he would spend three weeks. And he was explaining to his family that perhaps they were getting closer to shipment and that if they were, the process to do that would be roughly six to eight days. But things, of course, were subject to change. The latest news had them traveling by ship to New York Harbor or perhaps flying to Miami. In either case, he would report to Fort McPherson, Georgia. The king wrote his second August letter on the 13th, reporting that there really wasn't anything new for him, of course, but he had word that Japan had surrendered, and that improved the odds that he wouldn't go overseas to the Pacific. Nonetheless, he has been waiting for five weeks in the same old depot, and that he is happy to say he does have enough points to clear for home with 85. Stanley's next letter home is written on September 10th, and he relates, of course, that he's fine and acknowledges his pain for not writing at all since his letter of August 13th, and that's 28 days ago. But his excuse in part is that they have moved he and his guys from Le Bourg and the depot to Le Havre, which is a port city, to a tent city they all know as Lucky Strike. And he's despondent at this point, he says, I'm living in dirt, and it's difficult to explain. And over four pages, he relates that through his waiting, he has gained additional points, and whereas he had 77, had moved up to 85, and that 85 was the break point for those who would go home versus those who would stay. Anyone with less than 85 
would remain in Germany, and now he may be asked to return to Labor. But he writes again on September 19th, a nine-day break, where he describes that he's leaving tomorrow, the 20th, by train for Antwerp, and he will ride a ship. And that what he and his guys have been told is that the complete incompetence of his commanding officer and the officer's aides will result in some kind of punishment for them. Of course, it's not at all clear what that might be. But at least the king is more hopeful now. And as he describes in this last letter from Europe, if all goes well, he will reach New York Harbor in mid-October, and then he will call home. As Stanley awaits shipment home from Antwerp, I imagine, of course, that his return Atlantic crossing was also on the Queen Mary and that they treated him just as well on the ride home as they did on the ride to war. And, of course, our hero, who had been bunking at the Lucky Strike camp, had become a Lucky Strike man throughout his war years. The Silver King and his guys, of course, were often showered with cigarettes, in their packages and postings, and were grateful because they could smoke and trade the extras for other goodies with the folks in France. And now that the Silver King is on his way home, and his family, the Silverfields, await word of his arrival, we have reached the end of this episode of our review of Stanley's War. And you are listening to The Silver King's War. <laughs> 